Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. This is something perhaps many of us don't want to remember with much fondness. Think back to two years ago, New Mexico and much of the rest of the U.S. was in full-blown shutdown mode. We were essentially in month eight of the COVID pandemic. Vaccines at that point, those were on the cusp of existence, but still about a month away from being doled out in limited supplies at first. In New Mexico, without air quotes canceling Thanksgiving, the message certainly was from state leaders and some health leaders to limit holiday gatherings as cases were climbing to one of the worst peaks of the pandemic at that point. Today, it's obviously a pretty different landscape for COVID-19 and in New Mexico. Omicron variants have been far more mild for many people. Meanwhile, kids have been back in the classroom without a statewide mask requirement for a while now. People are mostly back in office buildings. They're traveling again. I'd say most things compared to 2020, at least, are back to a quote normal with COVID vaccines, booster shots and treatments that are all now widely available. Testing too, but that also doesn't mean that people aren't getting sick right now here in 2022. It turns out a lot of them are, and particularly it's kids this time around in the state. That made headlines recently as the University of New Mexico Hospital and other metro area hospitals like Loveless and Presbyterian, it recently addressed a surge of pediatric patients at their facilities during a news conference. Patients in those PEDS units are pushing numbers near, at, or above capacity at some facilities. This time, it is a combination of illnesses causing that. That's RSV, flu, and COVID, among other viruses. And if you're a parent like me, you might relate to a feeling of heightened anxiety, maybe, when your kid gets a cough or even the sniffles. And if you're dealing with something worse than a bad cold, you might find yourself frustrated by long waits at urgent care or trying to book appointments with your pediatrician. So why is this happening? How long might this latest chapter last? Here to answer questions today is Dr. John Peterson, Presbyterian Health Services Medical Director of Children's Care. Dr. Peterson, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you and other Albuquerque health leaders recently took part in this virtual news conference, sort of a discussion about the pediatric health care surge in New Mexico, question of why we're seeing so many kids in the hospital. You talked about this idea of a, quote, immunity gap, as you mentioned, or sort of a lack of immunity to typical seasonal viruses that we're seeing right now. RSV certainly comes to mind. Can you kind of elaborate on this? What is going on? What do you mean by that immunity gap? You know, the, the measures that we had in place uh, throughout the pandemic to limit the spread of COVID-19 really were very effective. Uh, you know, I think that we would have been in a, in a much worse situation than we were if we didn't have the, uh, the masking in place and the social distancing in place. And as good as that was at uh, limiting the spread of COVID-19, it was also very good at, at limiting the spread of RSV, 
influenza, uh, a lot of other viruses that tend to circulate in the community uh, seasonally. And and so uh, RSV in particular is a virus that typically come January, many, many children and adults are being affected. And that uh, typically lasts through about April. And typically every child by the time they're two, because of this seasonal burst of RSV, uh, develop a case of RSV. Um, but with the social distancing, with the masking, uh, with the hand washing, with the with the attention to keeping uh, numbers of COVID-19 down, we also kept those numbers of RSV down and of influenza down. We didn't have those typical seasonal uh, bursts during the COVID-19 pandemic. So now we have uh, several years worth of children that have been born uh, that have not had exposure to these viruses that do not have that immunity. And so we're, we're seeing much larger numbers than we usually do. And we're seeing it uh, a little bit earlier in the season than we usually do. In your career, where does this track? Worst you've ever seen? Notable? What do you think? Um, well, you know, I think that that uh, I, I've been a pediatric hospitalist here in, in Albuquerque for 20 years. And we certainly have had some very extreme um, uh, years with, with RSV and, and respiratory viruses uh, and, and been in situations similar to where we are right now, where we're running, you know, at capacity, above capacity, uh, creating waiting lists and, and, and having to be creative in terms of getting patients care um, in settings that are a little bit different than what we would consider to be um, usual. You know, I think that compared to past years, uh, this this does seem a little bit more severe, and and I think the the reason for that is one we are seeing very large numbers of uh, of kids with respiratory viruses, but I think that we're also in a very different situation uh, than we have been in past years. Um, you know, the COVID nineteen pandemic really affected largely adults. And uh, that's not to say that kids didn't get sick during uh, the pandemic because they did. Um, But in terms of the the population that was really getting sick and the population that was really in need for uh, inpatient care and, and emergency care, was, was largely adults. And so across the country, we saw pediatric programs um, closing down and, and shrinking and, and redeploying staff and providers uh, to help with these surges uh, in adults. And although, you know, we have been able to regrow a lot of these pediatric services as the COVID-19 pandemic has declined, we're not in a situation um, in, in which we are back to our pre-pandemic um, numbers in terms of nurses and providers and beds. And so it's, it's coming at a very challenging, uh, challenging time. And the other thing that's, that's a little bit uh, challenging and, and different from where we were a couple of years ago with COVID-19 um, is that, uh, again, at that time, we had uh, the ability to close down uh, clinics, close down pediatric units, redeploy staff. Um, but adults are also being affected and adults are still sick and uh, needing that care. And, and so we're not seeing that same um, uh, population of, of individuals that aren't getting sick that we can uh, redeploy to take care of those that are sick. It's kind of uh, on top of type of a situation that we're finding ourselves in. Would you expect this to be maybe a limited time sort of seasonal experience that this year seems to be bad? 
or is this something that we can kind of expect for maybe several winters to come? I think that uh, that we we can definitely expect this to go away for the season. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that this is something that we are going to see um, year round. But I, I do think that that we are in for the rest of our winter season of seeing very large numbers of sick pediatric patients. You know, if we uh, look at what's happening on the East Coast currently. Um, you know, that's in the East Coast and into the South is really where the large numbers of cases um, started in the country. And their numbers are still continuing to increase. And, and you know, we really trailed about four to six weeks behind them. So, you know, I, I think that uh, this is not something that's that's going away in the next couple of weeks um, or in the next couple of months. I, I think that that um, this early burst that we've seen is likely to carry through through the remainder of the uh, of the winter season. Let's talk a little bit about when parents should bring their children in for medical care, depending on what symptoms their child has and what that threshold should be. Because quick personal story, last week, my four-year-old was sick and I always go back and forth with my husband, you know, should we make her an appointment? What if the doctor can see something that I'm not seeing? She was negative for COVID, which is something that we can all test for at home now. But I also have coworkers who are parents and we're all swapping similar stories right now. So what should people be looking for symptom wise to know, Okay, I'm taking my kid to urgent care or I'm making them an appointment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, the, the symptoms that we see with RSV and a lot of these respiratory viruses are both upper and lower respiratory symptoms. And so, you know, the typical upper respiratory symptoms that we uh, that we get are having nasal congestion and having uh, a runny nose, having some cough. Uh, the lower respiratory symptoms are more of a severe cough and um, even uh, at times having having difficulty breathing. In in children, the uh, some of the challenges come about from even having some of those upper respiratory symptoms. Children uh, just don't feel like drinking fluids. And, uh, and we as adults can say, gosh, I really need to push the fluids and stay hydrated. Um, but that can be a real challenge in, in children. And so I think that one of the the first things that parents should be watching out for is, is my child continuing to, uh, to take fluids? Um, are they conti- continuing to, um, uh, to pee as they usually do? Or are they peeing less and drinking less? And um, then I'm a little bit more concerned that they're moving towards getting dehydrated. And so I think Dehydration is uh, is the first thing to be looking for. Um, the other symptoms that I think are of concern that parents should seek care for are uh, those lower respiratory uh, tract symptoms, and, and so they're they're uh, showing signs of increased worker breathing. They're um, breathing faster than they usually do using uh, muscles that aren't usually used to, uh, to breathe. So you see uh, them using abdominal muscles to uh, to force air out of their lungs, retracting, pulling in between the ribs or under the ribs, um, and, and again, using accessory muscles uh, that aren't usually used to breathe. Those are symptoms that um, uh, definitely would encourage parents to take their kids in for. Um, if, however, they're just having the typical upper respiratory uh, symptoms um, and perhaps even some fever, you know, those are things that really can be treated at home as long as your child is, is able to drink and, uh, and keep themselves hydrated. So 
My family dealt with COVID like a lot of families. And when it happened, I remembered our doctor telling us to monitor symptoms at home. There's not much you can do, like you said, for viruses besides write it out and maybe treat your symptoms at home. If a fever persists more than three days, they said, okay, take your child in. But then I'm also reading things that say, you know, if a fever lasts longer than four days, then take them in. And that it's a concern if the fever reaches 105. So can you just clarify, like, when should a fever be concerning? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, we, we get very nervous about fevers as parents. I'm a parent uh, as well. And, you know, it's it's really hard to see your child suffering with a fever. Fever really makes you feel lousy. Um, but I think that that um, uh, in terms of a degree of fever, uh, I, I can't really say there's a degree of fever that I would say, yes, that is uh, definitely um, something more concerning you need to take your child uh, in for. I would say it's more the uh, the way that fever is is affecting your child. And so, um, again, if your child is is sick with fever and that fever is making it to where they just won't drink, um, it's increasing their loss of, uh, of fluids and causing them to be dehydrated. That's more of a concern uh, when it uh, when it comes to fever. Um, then the other thing you, you brought up is, is duration of fever. I can't say that there's a, a magic number uh, in terms of number of days of your child is having fever, but there are things that, um, you know, you get a little bit more concerned about if fever is persisting. If your fever is persisting, perhaps your child is developing a secondary bacterial infection, uh, not just the, uh, the viral infection. Um, and, you know, that can be in the form of an ear infection. It could also be in the form of pneumonia. Um, and then certainly there are um, other conditions, uh, something that we call Kawasaki's disease or vasculitis, in which if we see fever that's persisting for more than five days, uh, that comes with a certain constellation of symptoms. Uh, that, that's something that we're typically more concerned about as well. So you know, I, I can't say there's a magic number of days, uh, but I think that fevers that are persisting uh, past those three to five days, and then certainly fevers that are making it to where your child isn't able to, uh, to take fluids and stay hydrated, those are the fevers that I'd be concerned about. And when you're talking about young children and babies who can't always like describe their symptoms to you, I know that can be another challenge, right? Um, You mentioned breathing. It's different for babies and even toddlers where they can tell you if their ear hurts and a baby can't. Is there something specific that parents can listen for or look for to see, is my baby having trouble breathing? Yeah, I think that um, very young children, it can be particularly challenging, young young neonates, because they can... They can actually be sicker uh, than uh, than they really appear to be, and, and also can be at risk of having you know, what we call apnea, so so pauses in their breathing um, without really having as as severe of disease. Um, but I think that that you know looking for uh, those pauses in breathing if you have a very young child, and again I think looking to see is your child um, so sleepy that they're not waking up to uh, to eat and therefore not staying hydrated. Those are the things to be concerned about. You know, you, you uh, bring up uh, hearing something. You know, certainly children with bronchiolitis can wheeze, and I think that uh, if your if your child is having some degree of wheeze, that's not necessarily something that I would be super concerned about. But if it's associated with those signs of increased work of breathing, definitely something that I would take them in to be seen for. One thing that I caught from that news conference as well is that 
a lot of care can be managed at home just through things like Tylenol and ibuprofen as well, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that there, uh, I'm certainly not someone that is a proponent of saying, yes, put your child on around the clock Tylenol and ibuprofen if they're having a uh, fever, um, because I think that that can be dangerous. You know, even even the over-the-counter uh, doses of, of medications like Tylenol and, and ibuprofen um, can cause harm uh, to your child. But again, if your child is having fever um, and, and the effects of that are that they're not wanting to drink and they're uh, at risk of getting dehydrated, uh, they're feeling absolutely miserable. By all means, treat that fever with uh, with Tylenol and ibuprofen. There are some uh, some uh, caveats to that. Uh, you know, children less than uh, six months of age, we typically do not give ibuprofen to uh, for risk of causing uh, problems with their with their kidneys. And uh, the dosing certainly can be different for very young infants for, for Tylenol compared to old, older children. And so certainly talking to your pediatrician and, and following the, uh, the manufacturer's recommendations. Another compounding factor here to just sort of the surge in pediatric related cases that, that it sounds like all the metro area hospitals are dealing with, at least from what UNM was saying um, earlier this week, was seeing a shortage of staff. And I'm not sure if you can shed any light on the situation. I know you do not work for UNMH, work for Presbyterian, a different facility. But in Presbyterian's case, is there a reason perhaps that you can see why staffing shortage has been out there? I know certainly we've talked about before on this podcast, right, the burnout factor that came during COVID and, and a lot of the other compounding factors with employment that's just happened as a relation to the pandemic. But can you shed any light on maybe what the situation is like at Presbyterian and and what other factors might be there for employment related stuff? Sure. I mean, you raised the uh, the concept of burnout, um, you know, certainly uh, being a nurse, in particular an inpatient uh, nurse throughout the pandemic uh, was extremely challenging. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of nurses have moved to um, other venues of, of care and using their skills um, in, in other areas. You know, I think, again, we, we had these losses of pediatric uh, beds and, and units throughout the pandemic, and, and some nurses have moved on to doing other work. I think that we've also seen a very significant shift just in the market with uh, nursing. And, you know, we were getting to a situation during the pandemic in which the need for inpatient uh, nurses and emergency room nurses was so severe um, that the the market for traveling nurses and um, and per diem nurses uh, was really growing significantly. And, and I don't think that we've completely recovered from that shift in the market at this point. And so, um, you know, there are still a lot of nurses that are uh, traveling. It, it comes with a higher salary. It comes with uh, some, some real uh, downsides, too, in terms of, you know, you're not in any one place for any uh, duration of time. But there are some people that that's really appealing to, uh, uh, depending on where they are in their, their life and their career. Uh, and so, you know, we, we just haven't seen a complete shift back in the market to being where we have the pre-pandemic population of nurses that we would usually be drawing from and, and, and hiring outdoor services. When it comes to staffing in our hospitals and even providers in private practice, this is something that made us more vulnerable, I remember, during the pandemic. What's the answer here, do you think? How can we get more healthcare workers to New Mexico? 
You know, I think that that even pre-pandemic, I, you know, I've been in the the role here of hiring um, uh, pediatric specialists to uh, to New Mexico. You know, I, I think that one uh, emphasizing the really incredible things that uh, New Mexico has to offer uh, when it comes to to living here. I'm a New Mexico native, grew up here, so might be a little bit biased, but. I, I love uh, I love New Mexico. I love the outdoors. I, I love the fact that we have uh, four seasons, uh, and yet none of them are are incredibly extreme. I, I love what New Mexico has to offer for my children and uh, raising my children. And I think that that really having a focus on what New Mexico does have to uh, to offer um, is the key. I, I think the the other thing when it comes to pediatrics, I think that the uh, the answer is getting to where we are doing things a lot more collaboratively uh, and a lot less competitively. And we uh, are doing a lot of things uh, very collaboratively right now within children's and and children's specialties, um, but we need to do more. And uh, the need for collaboration um, is so uh, incredibly uh, essential because if you have uh, two different practices um, of a given pediatric specialty and you have two over here and two over here, it means that both of those uh, practices are having somebody on call every other night. Um, But instead, if you have a practice of four or five that are here, you've suddenly made the the life of of that provider so much better um, in terms of being on call, you know, once every four days, once every five days. Um, and, and having really more of a community for those providers to um, to learn from each other and work together. So, you know, I think that that the the key when it comes to pediatrics um, is going to come in collaboration. For people that maybe have more anxiety around healthcare in general these days, or maybe feel frustrated by some of the delays that obviously come with this surge in pediatric cases. Is there anything you want to say that can maybe offer some relief to parents who are dealing with so much of the stress related to health these days? Sure. Um, well, first off, I, I want to say, you know, almost every patient that I've uh, gone into uh, to see over these past several weeks, I find myself um, apologizing to. But I will have to say that uh, New Mexico's uh, families um, have been so understanding despite the situation. I mean, I'm, I'm going in to see a child who has been uh, waiting in their uh, ER bed for over a day, and uh, and I don't have a, a bed for them. And I'm in there coming in and apologizing, and they're saying, it is okay, we completely understand. And, you know, I, I think that that has been uh, incredibly uh, welcoming to uh, to see Um, But I think that what I would tell parents is that, you know, through uh, our our working together, uh, through having pediatricians really getting down and into the emergency rooms and coming up with creative ways in which we can really make our our presence um, uh, be in other facilities through things like telehealth. What I would uh, let parents know is, although the situation that they may find themselves in is not the typical inpatient uh, situation, 
um, they're still going to be getting uh, very excellent care. And, and in fact, the, the same care that we would be offering uh, if they were actually physically in a hospital bed. And so, you know, we are, we're uh, going to continue to be creative and come up with ways in which we can, um, uh, can get the appropriate care to the appropriate patient uh, where they uh, currently uh, sit. Okay. So encouraging telehealth as well. Absolutely. I think that telehealth, uh, you know, we, we were uh, in a situation pre-pandemic in which uh, telehealth was something that um, was very foreign to, uh, to us in, in medicine. I mean, it, it was being utilized, but not nearly to the extent it was uh, through the pandemic. And I think that that's opened up so many uh, avenues and, and, and channels to being able to um, bring uh, pediatric specialists to areas that in the past uh, weren't really able to do. Dr. Peterson, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you feel like is important to address? Uh, I just really think that it's important for, for parents to know we are going to get through this and your children are going to receive um, excellent care. And uh, it, it is extremely uh, frightening as a parent, but we are going to get through this and everybody uh, working together is uh, what is going to get us there. What would you say to people who are saying, you know, we need to bring masks back? You know, I, I certainly if you if you see me out in uh, public and in the grocery store, um, I have gone back to uh, to wearing a mask. Again, masks were very effective in preventing the spread of RSV and influenza and these viruses that we're seeing over the past couple of years. And I really encourage people to uh, to wear uh, wear masks in in group settings. I think that it, it makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense. You know, am I for uh, you know mandating that uh, masks are in place? You know, I I I, uh, I hope that people really can understand that um, masking um, made an enormous difference, and uh, that again, if we work together, um, we can make an enormous difference in uh, in the continued COVID nineteen pandemic, as well as this current surge in respiratory illnesses that we're seeing. Thanks again to Dr. Peterson for joining us here on the podcast this week. Um, I think part of this recent discussion about the surge in pediatric patients was UNMH, which put out a news release saying they had opened their emergency operations center in response to seeing above capacity numbers at their pediatric facility. So that might sound like an intense term, the emergency operations center, but it is not maybe quite as intense as you're thinking. Um, for them, it certainly it means something, but basically as patients, you don't really see any of the impact of that aside from just knowing that there's a ton of people waiting for medical care at the hospitals right now in terms of pediatric medical care. For UNMH, the EOC is sort of a coordinating mission behind the scenes to help them deal with the continued influx of pediatric patients. So kind of a, a meeting of the minds where they talk about how best they can help each other behind the scenes achieve their mission. But as, as UNMH said, there's really no outward facing effect on patients aside from wait times. And one other thing I wanted to mention along these lines, the New Mexico Department of Health this week put out another press release announcing that the Department of Health Vaccine Advisory Committee met on November 3rd to have a discussion and make recommendations 
for the New Mexico school entry immunization requirements for the upcoming school year. So this committee meets once a year to discuss, you know, school entry immunization requirements. And one thing to note is the committee did not make any significant additions or changes to the 2023-24 school year. So no new vaccinations were mandated if you were wondering whether the COVID vaccine would be a requirement by your school district. The state is not doing that. Health Secretary Dr. David Scrace did say that vaccinating children against the flu and COVID-19 will help prevent disease spread, severe illness, and long-term complications in children. So it is recommended, but won't be a state requirement. Every once in a while, there seems to be this conversation that comes back Uh, especially during these sort of seasonal surges of whether or not we're going to go back to COVID mandates or requirements related to vaccination. And essentially at this point, the answer is no and has continued to be no, at least every time the health department is asked about this. The department was asked most recently in October about this, and they were essentially again saying no. So no mask mandates or requirements here at this point. We will have another episode for you all next week. In the meantime, you can always reach us via email or social media. Uh, Leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening from. My email is gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com and my social media is gburknm. I'm Chris.mckee at krqe.com and at chrismckee.tv. Thanks again for listening.